I moved to Colorado from Southern California about five months ago, and this is the first time I've worn a sweater in about seven years, so excited to be here with you on this cold morning. Um, if you've got a Bible with you, I want to uh, invite you to turn, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 10. Uh, if you've got a print Bible or a digital Bible, or if you don't have either of those, it'll be on the screen behind me as I read in just a minute. We've been working our way over the past couple of months through the book of Nehemiah, and today we reach what is really the, the climax, not the end of the book, but the, the crescendo of the book, the point that we have been kind of marching towards this whole time. So I'm going to read for us actually the last verse of Nehemiah 9, and then continue into chapter 10. Let's read God's word. It says, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, and Zedekiah. And then there are 82 more names. And I've read them many times to you, so I'm going to skip them this morning and invite you to... Uh, those of you who might be um, expecting a child might want to peruse those. There's some good names in there. Shobik and Hananiah and uh, others. Um, but skip down to verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. And the people said this, We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or to take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the, the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the houses of our God, of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and out of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers 
where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and then the people finish emphatically with this statement, we will not neglect the house of our God. And this is God's word. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we pray that with your people almost 2,500 years ago that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying to your people in this time and in our place. That God, we might know that you are faithful, that you meet with us, that you transform the lives of ordinary men and women and boys and girls just like us. And you invite us um, not just to know you, but to partner with you in your work in the world. And I pray that you would transform our minds, our imaginations, even now as we consider your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I think the question that this passage is posing to us this morning is this, are you all in? Are you all in? I know you probably didn't see that in the passage, but that, I think, is the, the question this passage is asking us. I don't know how that phrase, I'm all in, strikes you, what it might make you think of. It might make you think about playing poker. Uh, it might make you think of a particular experience. I, I, I remember a couple years ago, I was um, on a trip with one of my boys, and at the beginning, the leaders of the trip kind of circled us up and, and said, we just want to make sure that everybody's all in, and, and they asked us to go around the circle and everybody say, hi, my name is Bryce, and I'm all in, and I remember thinking, I don't even know exactly what we're doing yet, so it seems like a big ask at this point in the trip, and maybe that's a little bit what this feels like uh, to you right now when I'm starting off the sermon this way. Are you all in? But when I hear the phrase, all in, really what it makes me think of is my friend Robert. Uh, Robert is one of the most enthusiastic and positive people I've ever met, and Robert never says yes to anything. He says, oh, I am all in. And if I were to text Robert and say, hey, Robert, you want to get together for a beer next week? He would say, oh, heck yeah, I am all in. And if I said, hey, Robert, would you lead a Bible study for us next you know, month? And he would say, oh, I am all in. And as I, you know, I thought that was just like a verbal quirk that Robert had, but as I got to know him more and more, one of the things I realized from my friend Robert is that he truly believes anything that is worth doing is worth committing to. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing well, and it's worth being all in. And I think that that is what this passage is challenging us with this morning. If it's worth following God, it's worth listening to him at all, it's worth being all in. We've been studying the book of Nehemiah over the past couple of months because we're hoping that Nehemiah will guide us, the book of Nehemiah will guide us as we as a church emerge from this period of exile. And it's been remarkable as we've worked through this book over the past couple of months to see just the parallels between what's going on in the life of God's people in Jerusalem as they return to Jerusalem in 445 B.C., and what the table has experienced as a church over the last couple of months. God's people in the days of Nehemiah have been living in exile, removed from their land, not able to worship, and God, through Nehemiah, leads them home to rebuild 
the wall around the city so that they can gather for worship. And we've seen that the purpose of God doing all of this was not so that they could have a place to be comfortable, but so that they might be able to worship because it's as God's people worship that God shapes us and forms us to be the sort of people who can be a blessing to the rest of the world. And in the same way, the Christian church globally and our church in particular has experienced this time of exile where because of circumstances beyond our control, we haven't been able to gather and we haven't been able to worship And yet God is regathering us and we are rebuilding together. And during this time um, that that, that we haven't been able to gather, God has revealed some realities about, you know, our character as a people, as God's people. And so that question again comes, are, are we all in? Are we all in? And just as Nehemiah led God's people Uh, to rebuild the wall, as we've been studying this passage, God has given us these walls. God has um, shown up. God has provided for us. We were meeting outside, kind of wondering what was going to happen at the end of the summer, and God uh, provided this building, and and, and it's incredible. I mean, we we don't deserve it. We don't own it. We can't afford the market rate. Um, I don't know if the owners are here, but um, (laughs) I think they know that. Um, but God's provided, and God's provided this place for us, and God has been very good to us. And so now in chapter 10, as we get to the climax of this book, where God's people uh, renew the covenant, their covenant commitment to God, my hope and prayer is that as we've paralleled the book of Nehemiah for the last 10 chapters, or 9 chapters, I guess, that we would continue to do so by saying we are all in. As God's people respond to all God has done for them by saying that they are all in, that we would do the same thing, because I think it would be incredibly tragic to, have gone, to go through all that we've gone through in the last year and a half, and to have seen God continue to be faithful to his people, and to have experienced that so particularly in the life of our church, that we would get here to Nehemiah chapter 10, where God's people respond and say, this is what we are going to commit to. And for us to just look at their commitment and say, well, that's interesting. And for everything to just sort of slowly go back to the way that it was before. That would be tragic. And I think when I look at this passage this morning, we're looking at a place in the Bible that's similar to, uh, let me say it like this. We're looking at this passage where Jesus is asking us this question, are you all in? Are you all in? I've given you all of these things, how the first verse that I read begins. You know, because of all of these things, because of what? Because of 10 chapters of God's faithfulness, because of this, Jesus is now asking, how will you respond? Are you all in? (laughs) The word that the Bible uses when it talks about being all in is the word covenant. The end of chapter 9 The people say, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Now, I know that covenant is one of those Bible words that we don't really use in real life, in everyday language, right? And so the word covenant, we kind of, you know, unless we're signing like our HOA documents, we don't really know, uh, like we have a vague sense of what a covenant is, but what does that really mean? Uh, What does it really mean? A covenant 
um, is a bit like a contract, but it is far more relational than a contract. And it's a bit like a relationship, but it's far more binding than we tend to think of relationships as being. And so I think that the best way to understand what, we, what the Bible means when it talks about a covenant is with the understanding and the reality that all human relationships can essentially be broken down in, into one or the other category. That there are, there are covenant relationships and there are consumer relationships. And consumer relationships are ones in which the needs of the individual take precedence over the needs of the relationship. So this is a bit like the way I relate to Home Depot. Now, I go to Home Depot like almost every day. And I give lots of my money to Home Depot because I'm always building or fixing or working on something. Okay, and so I go into Home Depot like often enough that the people in the paint department know who I am at this point. And um, I go in there all the time. I have a relationship with Home Depot. But my relationship with Home Depot is dependent on getting the things that I want from Home Depot at a price that I'm willing to pay. Right? I have no obligation to Home Depot. And so the fact that they're building a Lowe's between this building and my house means that I'm probably going to be going to Lowe's more often in the future. Right? And, and I, I'm not like betraying Home Depot when I decide to go to Lowe's instead. Right? A, a consumer relationship is one in which my needs or the needs of an individual trump the needs of the relationship as a whole. So what's a covenant relationship? Well, a covenant relationship is one in which the relationship itself takes precedence over the needs of the individual. Okay, a covenant relationship is the inverse of a consumer relationship. A covenant relationship is one in which the needs of the relationship itself take precedence over the needs of the individual. And I know that given, you know, the cultural moment that we live in and, and, and you know, the background that most of us have, that the idea that we would look at any relationship in that way, at a gut level, I think, feels kind of wrong. But the um, best way to understand a covenant relationship is to think about the relationship between a parent and a child. Um, a parent-child relationship is one where at its essence, one, you know, the parent is saying to the child, I am in this, I am committed to you no matter what. And um, anybody who's a parent knows that you don't look at your kid and say, you know, I don't think this relationship is working out very well <laughs> because I'm giving way more than I'm getting from this relationship, right? To say that, I mean, you could go to jail for that, right? That, that's, that's not good. Um, the essence of a parent-child relationship is before I ever met you, before I ever saw you face-to-face, -face, I was committed to you. I loved you. I was all in for you before I even knew you specifically. That's what a covenant relationship looks like. And I think it's important to understand that consumer relationships aren't inherently bad. In fact, most relationships begin as consumer relationships, right? When you, when you start dating somebody, you're really just marketing yourself to them, right? And, um, but any relationship that is worthwhile in the long run eventually has to be sort of converted into a covenant relationship, and there's no better illustration of that than marriage, right? At a marriage ceremony, that's exactly what's happening. You're moving from a, I'm in this as long as it works for me, to I'm in this no matter what. And, um, you know, most people on their wedding day, they look the best that they've ever looked in their life, right? And, and you don't stand up in front of your friends and family and loved ones and look at this person and say, I'm committed to you as long as you look as good as you do today. 
right? That, that, would be, that would be foolish. But have you ever really thought about what we say at a wedding? You know, you say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. You're saying, here we are. We've never been in this good a shape. We're not going to look this good in five years. There's going to be a time when I'm going to watch you throw up. <laughs> and I'm promising right now that I'm not going to leave when that happens. Things are going to get much worse in our life. And I'm promising in front of everybody I care about that I'm still going to be faithful to you. That's what a covenant looks like. That's what a covenant relationship is. It's a relationship where the needs uh, of the relationship trump the needs of the individuals in the relationship. And so it's crucial for us to understand, or what's crucial for us to understand is this, that in the Bible, covenant relationship begins with God. God isn't saying, like, are you going to love me this much? <laughs> no, God is the one who initiates the covenant with us. And so in Genesis 12, he came to a guy named Abraham, and he said, Abraham, well, Abram at the time, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. God initiates that relationship with Abraham. He's saying, I'm committed to you no matter what. And on the cross, we see this most clearly as we see Jesus remaining faithful to that promise. As he suffers, as he dies, as he hangs there on the cross, he's getting nothing out of that relationship. But he remains faithful and he cries out, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. This relationship isn't working for him, but he's faithful. So God is the one who initiates a covenant relationship with us, and then he is faithful and he is utterly committed to you, and that does not depend on your faithfulness to him, and yet, and yet, the, what, the, what the Bible invites us into is this, seeing God's faithfulness to you invites us to respond with covenant faithfulness to God. We cannot see God's unrelenting faithfulness to us without responding in kind. Such unconditional love calls forth a response. You know the hymn, um, when I survey the wondrous cross, finishes with this line, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. How could I get a glimpse of all that God has done for me in Jesus and not respond to him? God initiates, but we have to respond. A covenant is not about an obligation. It's not about a deal I rashly got myself into, and now I'm obligated by its terms. It's a commitment that flows out of love and passion. It's about recognizing how passionately God has loved us and responding in kind. And that's what God's people are doing here in Nehemiah chapter 10, or actually the end of verse 9, where they specifically say, because of all of this, because of what? Well, because of everything we've been talking about for two months, because God has been faithful, because he's provided, because he has brought our people back to their homeland, because he has so worked in the heart of a Persian king that he would not just let us go, but give us timber from his personal forests. That he would give us letters of safe passage. Because he has supernaturally enabled us to rebuild in record time, overcoming internal divisions and external opposition and persecution and more. Because of all of this, God's people respond by making a firm covenant in writing. That's what's happening in this passage. So... What does that look like? They go, they go into specifics. Chapter 9, they say, we're making this firm covenant in writing. And chapter 10, 
they detail what commitments they're actually making to God. And it says that they signed their names. I love this. I mean, could you imagine if I finished this sermon by saying, okay, this is what we're going to do. Now, anybody who wants to, like, who's all in? Let's come and sign our names to this document. But there's 84 specific people who signed their names. And, and more than that, they're representing all of God's people at this time. And they make this covenant commitment specifically and publicly. And what do they commit to? Well, there, there are four specific commitments that they make. The first thing that they commit to is they commit to God's word. In verse 29, they commit to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and statutes. Right? They, they are committing themselves to read and be shaped by and live life according to God's word. A renewed passion for God's word transforms a spiritually lethargic community. The second thing that they commit to is rejecting syncretism. Again, we saw this last week, but again, there was this um, kind of weird verse. Is it verse 30 where they say, we won't give our... Um, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We won't, we won't intermarry with the people, the other people, that, the non-Jews who live in this land. And, and again, that sounds strange to our ears. It's not about racism. It's not about nationalism. It's about syncretism. It's about the worship of God being corrupted because the cares of the world uh, infect our hearts. Syncretism is bringing something into Christianity or doing something in God's name that perverts the reality of who God really is. And so um, for God's people in the Old Testament, here in Nehemiah 10, we see this elsewhere, uh, throughout the history of the Old Testament, that intermarriage with people who don't worship the living and true God tends towards compromise. It's not about racism or nationalism. It's about the reality that for followers of God to marry someone of a different faith results most often in the corruption of that faith. And um, we see this throughout the, New Te the Old Testament. Paul speaks about this in the New Testament. But for us, I think this might look, you know, might have a broader application. It's not simply about who do we marry. It's about rejecting syncretism. It's about, um, this, for us, this might look something like a worldly approach to power. It might look like Christian nationalism and rejecting it. It might look like some, not all, but some secular approaches to social justice. In a world where we are so tempted to flirt with compromise, God's people commit to rejecting compromise. The third thing that they commit to is to observing the Sabbath. The Sabbath taking off one day a week in seven for rest and worship was sort of the original and primary marker of what it meant to be God's people. After 400 years in slavery in Egypt, without a day off for 400 years, God takes his people out of slavery and on the way to the promised land, he says, because I'm your God, I'm giving you a day of rest every week. Because God cares for his people and because God provides all that we have and all that we need, God's people uniquely are able to rest. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, if we do not regularly quit work for one day a week, we take ourselves far too seriously. 
as if God couldn't keep the wheels of the world turning, you know, without our help for a 24-hour period every week. And then the fourth thing that God's people commit to here is they commit to prioritizing worship. And I forgot to say this before I read it, but, but, but Pat, uh, verses 32 through 39, we see this there, and every single um, verse in that section, in those seven verses or eight verses, contains the phrase, the house of our Lord or the house of God. Um, this repetition of the house of the Lord, we commit to worship and we commit to, you know, financially, they're saying we commit to supporting the needs of the priests. And let me just be clear, I'm, I say this like I'm not, this is in no way a guilt trip, I literally have no idea what the financial picture of the table is. Like, I'm, I'm not saying you should give more. I, I'm, you should give, but I, I have, I'm not saying, I don't know who gives, I don't know who doesn't give, I don't know if giving's good or bad. I hope I get paid on a monthly basis. That's the extent of my knowledge of our financial picture here. But what, what, what they're saying is like, part of committing to prioritize worship is about investing our resources, investing our resources, and investing our time, and in making sure that those who lead God's people in worship are available and that they have what they need to lead in worship. And then they end with this emphatic statement, we will not neglect the house of our God. Okay, so these four commitments are what God's people in 445 B.C. make as they covenant and renew their covenant with God in response to God's goodness. That's what it looks like for them to love God. What does this mean for us today? And what might it look like for us to step back and realize and observe that God has been so faithful. He has never let us down. And he invites us to respond with covenant faithfulness to him. Well, like I said, I think it would be tragic considering how closely we have paralleled the book of Nehemiah to kind of walk with God's people and Nehemiah up to this point and then go, oh, that's a really interesting point. And then everything slowly goes back to the way that it was before. God has brought his people out of exile. God has brought us out of meeting outside. He has gathered us back together. He's given us this space as a home base for ministry. How will we respond to all of this? Because the God who initiated a covenant with his people thousands of years ago has been faithful to his people even still. And he counts us, even us here in 2021 in East Boulder County, part of this same covenant promise that he made to Abraham and has been faithful to his people to uphold ever since. And so it's appropriate that we likewise respond to God's grace by saying, God, you, uh, God, we have treated you as a consumer good. And God, we're sorry. And God, we've often treated you like you were there to make us happy and we're sorry. And God, we've often turned our back on you when you haven't done what we've wanted you to do and we're sorry. And we've often engaged in syncretism. We've often thought that we could adopt the world's standards of comfort or power or success and just kind of sprinkle a little veneer of Jesus on the top. And that that would be good enough. And God, we're sorry. And God, when we recognize anew how you have welcomed us, 
And when we discover again how much you have forgiven us in Christ, and when we pause to consider how just abundantly, God, you have blessed us, God, we want to say to you in response, we're all in. We're all in. How could we respond any other way? And having come through what I think for most of us is the most chaotic year and a half of our lives, we don't want everything to return to the way that it was before. And so, God, we say that we want to know you. And we don't just want to know about you. We want to we want to know who you are, and we want to be shaped by you for our life in this world, God. And so we commit to you, and we want to affirm our covenant with you, God. So what might that look like? Well, I've been working on sort of summarizing six characteristics without trying to be too simplistic or too just detailed that it misses the point because we can't remember so many details. I've been trying to summarize in six characteristics what, what I think the Bible would lead us to believe faithfulness to God looks like in this time. And you may have seen this before. This isn't the first time I've, I've shared some of this with you. And um, as Brad begins to slowly emerge from his autumnal rest over the coming <laughs> weeks, we'll be talking about this more. And eventually, I think we'll be beginning to talk about what is faithfulness and what is maturity and what does leadership look like and what do we do in our cohorts. And in, in, in these terms, because as we look at the Bible, I believe that these six characteristics emerge over and over and over again about what it looks like to be faithful. And so I'm not going to go into great detail about, about what this looks like, but I just want you to hear these words and I'm going to say something about the way that they work together. So three practices that I believe are central to discipleship. And the three practices that are central to discipleship are reading the Bible and praying, practicing the Sabbath, and hospitality. And then there are three convictions that aren't necessarily things that we do as much as, as realities that God has pressed into our lives that that characterize the way that we live our lives. And so three convictions that are central to discipleship in our time and place are that the gospel changes everything and that the church is central to our spiritual growth and the conviction that I am my brother's keeper. And I honestly, if I'm telling the truth, I don't love the phrasing of that last one, that I am my brother's keeper. And yet there is this reality throughout the Bible that we don't come to God simply you know, you doing your thing and me doing my thing, but that God brings us together and we have, um, we have a responsibility towards one another. We have this responsibility towards one another that we can't stand, simply stand by and watch people, you know, make self-destructive decisions and go, well, that's just kind of what they want to do. But we belong to one another. And so we care for one another. And we see all of these really in this passage and certainly throughout the book of Nehemiah. But again, I'm not going to go into detail. So we'll talk more in the coming weeks and months about what do these things mean and how do we do them and what would motivate us and why. But really what I want you to see uh, this morning is, is the reality that these characteristics, these marks of discipleship actually work together. And as we 
affirm our covenant commitment to God and begin to take seriously the way that he is forming us in the world, that they begin to create this sort of gospel ecosystem that nourishes life and where life just gets really fun and good even when it's difficult. And the effect is, in a sense, to create a, a flywheel that nourishes and sustains our life together as God's people. I uh, recently stumbled across a new movie, you know, in our family. Friday nights are often movie night. And the end of the week, we're looking for a movie that um, is appropriate for the kids and mom and dad still want to watch, which seems to be an increasingly small uh, list of movies. And so a couple of weeks ago... Um, we watched this movie that had been on my list for a while called The Biggest Little Farm. And I don't know if you've seen this, but if you haven't, you can rent it for like three bucks on Amazon Prime, or you can come to my house because I bought it, because it's amazing. And it's the story of this couple who buy a farm in Southern California. And the farm that they bought, um, you know, these pictures at the beginning of of the, it's a documentary, really, Um, at the beginning of the story, it's like this dry, dusty, dead farm where even the bees have died. Uh, It just looks really, really bad. And they've determined to create an ecosystem that has vibrant, uh, that is vibrant and nourishes life out of this farm that looks like it has had the life sucked out of it. And in contrast to most farms, I guess, in America, um, where farmers you know, focus on one or two crops and just suck as much efficiency out of those two crops as they can, which results in the the land sort of dying slowly. This couple hires this consultant to work with them because they want to create essentially a flywheel, an ecosystem, a, a place where life is nourished and sustained. And so they hire this consultant to work with them And he knew that the most important thing to bring this farm back to life was to build the health of the soil, the health of the soil, and to plant an incredible diversity of plants. And so that's an actual picture of their farm. And in this area, I think they had originally planned to plant three different kinds of fruit trees, but their consultant talked them into planting like 78 different kinds of fruit trees because the diversity and cross-pollination that comes from that would contribute to the health of their farm. And eventually the farm would blossom. And so one of the first things that they did was in between the, ro- the rows of trees in their orchard, they planted a cover crop so that the sun wouldn't scorch the earth and water wouldn't just run off and decimate the topsoil. And so they plant this cover crop, but now there's, you know, like grass growing all over the place. And they initially think, well, now we have to mow all of this grass but instead of that, they realized, well, we could just bring our sheep, and our sheep could graze on the cover crop, and the sheep droppings actually contribute to fertilizing the soil. And so they begin to do that, but it creates a problem because as, as the cover crop begins to grow and it begins to fertilize these uh, fruit trees, they attract bees, and bees begin to swarm, and the increasing pollinization of the fruit trees attracts more birds as a result, and that ravage, the birds ravage their fruit, and in their first year, they lost 70% of their fruit crop. And, and what happens throughout this, narr- this documentary 
is that every new sign of life seems to produce a new problem. And every step, for, every step towards health feels like a step backwards. And so the next thing that happens is that snails invade. And snails love the, the cover crop, and they begin to invade the cover crop and eat the leaves of the fruit trees, which inhibits their growth. And there are thousands and thousands of snails, and the trees are beginning to suffocate, and they don't know what they're going to do. But because their farm is coming back to life, ducks have moved into their pond. And they realize that ducks love to eat snails. And so they bring the ducks, and the ducks eat the snails. And it says that they ate 90,000 snails and turned them into fertilizer for the trees. <laughs> and then more flies come. And flies produce maggots, which can feed chickens. And then gophers move in. And the gophers love the cover crop, and they aerate the soil as they dig, but there's so many of them that they're eating the roots of the trees, and they're killing the trees. But owls love to eat gophers, and so they install a few, like, owl houses, and they counted 87 owls that ate an estimated 15,000 gophers the first year. And then when a dog takes up the role of guarding the chickens from the coyotes, then the coyotes begin hunting the gophers instead. And it takes a long, long time, but after seven years, when Southern California gets drenched in 18 inches of rain in a week, and all of the topsoil is washing away from their neighboring farms, this abundant, fertile farm just captures water. The water doesn't run off. It seeps into the ground, and life begins to emerge. And everything working together creates an ecosystem and a flywheel that brings something back to life that was formerly dead. And this farm begins to be a place where life flourishes and, in fact, becomes a refuge for the weary as birds and other animals from the surrounding area come and find rest and life in this fertile soil. And I know that was a long story, and it's a great movie, and I didn't ruin it because it's just beautiful. <laughs> But I tell you all that because that's a picture of the church at its best. And my prayer is that that is a picture of the sort of life that God has in mind for the story of our church in the future. And what I love about this image, this image of this farm being brought back to life as an ecosystem through diversity, is that it's just so real. I mean, it, it shows us that this isn't just going to happen overnight. We're not going to like get a strategic vision plan and implement it, and things are going to just be awesome in a week. It's going to take time, and there will be setbacks, and it won't happen by accident, and there will be problems that we didn't anticipate, and yet God is good. And the simple, ordinary faithfulness of God's people responding with covenant commitment to the God who is first, first faithful to us can become an ecosystem where life flourishes and the weary find refuge. And as we become people who don't just sort of occasionally read the Bible and ask God for things in prayer, but rather as we become people who commit to being shaped by God's story about who we are and what he has done for us in his word. And as we respond to him, in prayer, that we gain the confidence to actually practice hospitality, like really hospitality, not having our friends over for a great meal, which is great, but welcoming the outcast, making room for those who have no place to go.
And doing so creates problems because people are messy and they bring their mess with us when they come. And so there's problems and there's questions that we hadn't anticipated, but we live with the conviction that we belong to each other and we can rely on each other and we can resource one another. We can carry each other's burdens and so we practice the Sabbath together because we're not too self-important to rest. And slowly but surely, God begins to change us into a community that believes that the gospel is true. And we don't just believe the gospel is true in our heads, but we believe it in our bones and we can actually rest. And we can be a calm, restful people living in the midst of an anxious world. Because the truth of who God is and what he has done for us has so saturated our way of being that characterizes all of our interactions. And then somehow, somehow in the midst of an anxious world, our friends and neighbors can't help but wonder what's going on. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine finding a community like that? So I think the question is this, do you want to live like that? Do you want to live that kind of life? Or do you want to go back to the way that life was in 2019? I can tell you that I don't want to go back to the way that life was in 2019. I don't want to go back, but I know I can't move forward on my own. I want to be a part of a church that covenants together in response to who God is. Moving us into the future with hope, knowing that it's not going to be easy it will not be painless. It will not be quick. We're going to have to learn how to apologize and to stick with each other when it's hard. But if we do, if God makes us into healthy soil, we could become, become a church that flourishes. Not to say that we haven't been in the past. Who could do that? Only God could do that. I mean, that's not going to happen just because we have a great plan. Only God could do that, and yet God can do that. That's what he is in the business of doing. Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also give us all things? Amen. Let me see if there are any questions this morning in response to the Q&A. Okay, a couple of questions here. <clears throat> okay, I want to not impose on the text, but also to not use our freedom in Christ as a way to dismiss the application of verse 31, because we would readily affirm verse 30. What is verse 31 teaching us today regarding honoring the Sabbath? Ought we not be bind from the people of the land on the Sabbath? If so, what is the why behind not bind from them? So verse 31 is um, the passage that talks about not trading on the Sabbath. And if you get into the, the background here, and um, in, in the first five books in the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, where um, God tells his people to keep the Sabbath and to, um, to rest on the seventh day. Um, and then Moses in Deuteronomy sort of applies that in very specific ways. And there, it, there was not a place 
in the original giving of the law and the first five books that, that had this specific prohibition um, that, that forbade God's people to buy grain on the Sabbath. And so what, what's happening here in Nehemiah is that God's people find themselves in a different cultural context. Um, they're not the only people in the land. They are um, living in a religiously diverse place. And so Nehemiah um, is applying this kind of principle of what it looks like to honor the Sabbath in the midst of a multicultural people and place. And um, so ought we not to be buying from the people of the land on the Sabbath? And if so, what is the why behind not buying from them? So there's a lot of um, different sort of takes on what does it look like for Christians to obey and observe the Sabbath. And um, I would say, and uh, part of the reason why I struggle with the, the Q&A is that it's just like a 20-minute answer that I got to try to give in 20 seconds, um, is that the, the call of the Sabbath is to rest and to worship. And um, there have been places that have tried to establish the practice of the Sabbath in much more stringent and legalistic ways um, that I think are ultimately harmful and self-destructive. But I think the other thing that comes out in this, in this passage is that um, the, at the end of verse 31, it, it talks about, we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. And so there, there was, in the, in the, at least in a theoretical way, in the practice of God's people in the Old Testament, not just uh, resting one day out of seven, but that act actually giving, letting the fields rest one year out of every seven years. And, um, and then the year of Jubilee, which I think was like every 49 years. And um, in the year of Jubilee, that all debts would be forgiven. And, and so really what this is about is about justice for the poor. Um, it's about um, not... So squeezing what we would call efficiency out of every last drop of potential earnings that we functionally imprison the people who are at an economic disadvantage. And so I think that as we think about what does our practice of the Sabbath look like, we need to take that reality into consideration, that it's not simply a time to like party, <laughs> you know, self-indulgently, but that our honoring of the Sabbath is about justice for the poor. So, love to talk with you more about that. Um, the next question, why does verse 29 say they entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law? The curse is an aspect is an un unclear to me. Um, man, I'm, I'm going to be way over time if I answer this question. <laughs> okay, so essentially... Um, a covenant has, uh, th there are blessings that are associated with um, keeping the covenant, and there are curses that are associated with not upholding your end of the covenant. And so you can see that in like Genesis um, 18, where there's this weird thing where Abraham cuts animals in half, and then a smoking pot and flaming torch passes between them. And it's a picture of God saying, um, this is what's going to happen if you fail to keep the covenant that you should, you should actually be torn in two, but God says, I'm going to uphold my end of the covenant and yours. And so on the cross, ultimately what we see is Jesus taking the curse of failing to observe the covenant on himself. 
again, short answer, there's a lot more to be said. Um, I'm going to pray for us as we transition to the Lord's Supper this morning. Would you pray with me? So God, we thank you that you are faithful. And uh, we thank you that no matter what, you promise to be faithful to your word, that your promises don't depend on our faithfulness. And so as we come to uh, the Lord's Supper this morning, would you remind us again of what it took for you to be faithful? That those curses that God's people um, swear upon themselves were taken off of our shoulders because Jesus took them upon himself. And that's what we're celebrating here this morning. And so we pray that you would use these uh, simple elements to strengthen our commitment to you as we respond to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.